This is Great Dane Nation, presented by Vegas Insider. I'm your host, Morton Anderson. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, the very draftable, Tommy Freeze Pops. Tommy, what do we have this week? Morton, I don't know how confident I am in my 40-yard dash, but I am confident in this week's podcast. It's draft week, so who better to join us than a man that's covering the NFL draft for NFL Network? He was a pretty good player in his own right as well. Hall of Famer, Super Bowl champion, league MVP, Kurt Warner joins the show. Then I'll be joined by our experts from Vegas Insider to talk about the draft from a gambler's perspective. And as always, we'll close things out with your weekly game winner. So we've got a lot of great stuff planned for you guys. But Morton, before we get to your conversation with Kurt, I wanted to give you the floor to talk about your draft experience. I know it's a lot different today than it was back then, but what stands out to you most from that time in your life? And what advice would you give these draft hopefuls this week? Okay, uh, 1982, April Third, fourth week in April, I'm in my house on 533 Evergreen Street in East Lansing. Uh, We have about five other roommates. We each had our room. It's an animal house. The kitchen was a science project, so nobody ever went to the kitchen. This particular day was a beautiful spring day. We had all committed and pitched into a big keg of beer. Love that. The local TV guys, all the sports guys that were covering, you know, local sports were invited. And, uh, you know, I was predicted to go third round, fourth round. So we didn't know at what point in the day it was Chris Berman. It was in the infancy of ESPN and its coverage of the draft. Our TV was a tiny black and white edition. So a lot has changed since, obviously. The, uh, the whole day continued throughout with beer, with talk, with waiting. And uh, uh, my agents were there from Cleveland. And we were waiting around, and five o'clock rolled around. A couple of sports reporters were sleeping on the couch. They'd had too much iced tea. (laughs) (laughs) I was pacing like a lion in a cage because I was so unfair that I hadn't been drafted yet, of course. And I cannot believe it. And oh my gosh. And the phone finally rang. And this was the rotary phone in the kitchen. So I did have to go into the, the kitchen to get the phone. And it was an assistant to Bum Phillips. And he said, hey, uh, this is uh, so-and-so from the Saints. And I was like, the Saints? I haven't talked to the Saints at all. This is like, what? And Bum wanted to talk to me. And Bum's first words to me were, son, this is Bum Phillips. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And he said, "Um, do you like country and beer? (laughs) I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Of course, I was more an ABBA guy and liked my wine. But You know, when Bum Phillips asks if you like country music and beer, you salute and say, yes, sir. Absolutely. And after that, he said, well, come on down. We just drafted you in the fourth round. And that was literally my conversation with Bum Phillips. And then the party was on from there. I actually have a picture of me dumping a a whole pitcher of beer on top of my head. And um, (laughs) I have a feeling that that might end up on on the pod, you know, at some point. I'm going to need to see that picture. (laughs) I'm going to need to see it. So any advice from the day? It was a great day. It ended up beautifully. My advice would simply be this to the guys that are waiting, 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 because that's the worst part is just the waiting, because everybody has an, you know, an opinion of when you should go and to whom you should be drafted. Enjoy it. Be in the moment and enjoy it with your family and your friends and forget about figuring out where, when, how 
just trust that the process works, that you will end up where you're supposed to end up, and then immerse yourself completely in that experience. But just enjoy the moment instead of wishing for something that you don't even know is going to happen or might happen. Uh, so I would just say that, try to be present in that time because it's a very powerful defining moment in, in a young man's life when you go from college to being completely poor. And you know, I was living on $150 a month that my parents would send. And this is back when it would take two weeks for this check to clear. So, I mean, th- th- this was brutal times. We, we were, we're poor. I didn't have any money. I mean, you're, you're a college athlete, and uh, there was no paycheck coming. And then you go from that to being drafted to a signing bonus, you know, for signing your name and a regular salary. I mean, it, it, it's life-changing for these guys. And so you just hope they have good advice, but you hope that you stay in the moment and really enjoy it. A guy that definitely has stayed in the moment his entire career is Kurt Warner. So let's get to that conversation with Kurt. All right, man, let's kick it. My guest today is a fellow Pro Football Hall of Fame brother from the year 2017. His story is truly amazing. And the one word that keeps coming back to me when I read his story, when I hear his story, is perseverance perseverance from a third string quarterback in Northern Iowa to a starter at Northern Iowa an all conference selection through the Packers getting cut in 94 Cedar Falls grocery store at 550 an hour arena football league for the Iowa barnstormers where he absolutely balled out for a couple of years. He's by the way, he's in the arena league. Hall of Fame. I'm not sure what that is. I'll ask him in a second. (laughs) And then, of course, signs a futures contract with the St. Louis Rams and goes to NFL Europe and plays for the Amsterdam Admirals in 98. And then he has the complete breakout year in 99. But suffice it to say, I would much rather, and I know you would much rather hear it from my guest, Kurt Warner, than me. But this gets us going, Kurt. And am I accurate in describing your journey with that one word, perseverance? I mean, I think if if you ask most people to, to sum it up in one word, that would probably be the word that they use. Obviously, I hear that word all the time. And, you know, it's it's one of those words that you're happy to be associated with uh, because I know there's some guys in our profession where things work out fairly well for them through college into the pros and everything goes well. But you know, as well as I do that most people in life have to persevere. They have to go through stuff when they're chasing after whatever it is that their dream is or whatever they're trying to do to make ends meet. There's usually a a number of times where they get sidetracked and a whole bunch of, of where they end up and what they ultimately accomplish has to do with their ability to persevere, to uh, to push through, to, to figure things out when things aren't going their direction. I, I know you remember from my Hall of Fame speech, I said, sometimes you got to do what you got to do while you're waiting to do what you were born to do. And I feel like that's, that's a saying that would hold true for most people as they're holding out in their dream and they're chasing what they really want in life. Sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. And that really became my motto is that, hey, here's where I'm at right now. What can I do right now to help me still chase my dream or get prepared or, or, or build something in my life 
that can ultimately help me to accomplish what I want to accomplish. Mm-hmm. You know, because I think it's easy for all of us to get frustrated and blame our circumstances because we all find ourselves in crazy circumstances. And that's another thing my wife and I, we all get to say that in our family. It's just that we never let our circumstances define us, right? Sometimes things aren't where we want them to be, but that's never going to define who we are. And so, you know, a number of those things are things that I learned along the journey that this is where I'm at right now. It's not where I'm going to end up. I promise you that, but it's where I'm at right now. And I got to figure out how to do that the best that I can in the spot that I'm in. But then also, how can I use that to hopefully catapult me to uh, to somewhere else along the, the, the ladder or, you know, to another rung or another step higher as you continue to plug away until you get that opportunity. And then, as we both know, you know, oftentimes we'll get an opportunity. Got to be ready for that opportunity. Some people might get 10. Other people might get one. What do you do with that opportunity when uh, when it's presented to you? And I was fortunate that I was able to, to take advantage of it when I finally got it. I talk a lot about defining moments. And when when those come in your life, sometimes you're not aware that they come. Sometimes you're too young. And when you're too young with that youthful oblivion, that sometimes the train leaves the station and you're not on it. Just because you just don't know, you're not fully baked. Yeah. So was it? So so looking back to like high school, and you you and I were boy, born and raised there, and went to high school in Iowa, went to college in Iowa. Looking back to your younger years, was there a at that point? Because it sounds like you were grinding, and you had the patience, which I really respect a lot. The patience to allow the moments to come to you. But then there's also this thing about trying to understand the defining moments when they come. So early in your life. Number one, what was it in your mind and who kind of directed you as a mentor to to see it? Well, I would say that, you know, the, the biggest thing that really defined me throughout my journey was, A, I never lost faith in myself. And that, I think, becomes a huge part of the process because it's an easy thing to say, right? Is oh, I always believed in myself. But, you know, when when you're going through struggles or things aren't going your direction or people are are telling you that you can't do it, you can't make it. Uh, Even sometimes those close to you, you know, unknowingly will say things that just kind of could knock you down a notch or could take away your confidence. That was one thing that I never lost my confidence throughout the entire journey that, you know, I never let anybody tell me that I couldn't do something because I had a very realistic approach to what I could and couldn't do and where I was successful. And when I was, you know, when I did have a football in my hands, that I was always successful in that moment. So I wasn't going to let anybody tell me that I couldn't do that. But you're you're right. There's always instrumental people along the way that help to keep that going. And so way back, I had a a basketball coach in, in high school and he was great at being able to recognize talent and then being able to push all of us towards that talent. You know, he didn't coach everybody the same. Um, He understood what I was capable of. And he would continually instill in me these ideas of what I can accomplish and what I can be. And don't ever let, and again, that idea of circumstances define you is that that can go both ways. Sometimes we're in bad circumstances and we can allow that to define us. But he was really good at saying, hey, even when things look to be good for you and you seem to be the best player on the court or whatever it was, don't let that define you. Just being better than everyone else. Tap into what you can be in in your completeness or uh, in excellence or, or chase after something greater than just being the best on the court at that particular moment. And that was a really great lesson for me early on that 
oftentimes when you're really good early on, it's easy to go, oh, well, I can just kind of sit back and rest. I mean, I'm, I'm better than all these guys. I don't have to work as hard. And he would never let me do that. So that was something that was instilled in me very early. And then I had a few other people along the way. I told the story again at the, at the Hall of Fame where when I was playing arena football, I had a coach that was coaching in NFL Europe that came to me in 1996 and basically said, I really like what you're doing. I would like for you to come over and play for me in NFL Europe. And I knew that I would have to go over there if I was going to get back to the NFL. So that wasn't the hangout. It was simply, I just told them, if you can get me signed with an NFL team, I'll go play for you. So I know I get one more opportunity. And 96 went by and he made some calls and nobody, nobody was interested. So I told him, you know, I appreciate it, but I'm just going to stay where I'm at because I got a pretty good situation right here uh, until I can get another shot. And sure enough, the same coach called me a year later and offered me the same opportunity. And I gave him the same spiel that, hey, get me signed with someone. He went once again and made a bunch of calls. And ultimately, he was the one that got me to try out with the Rams, got me signed with the Rams. And then I went over to Europe with him. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, there's people like that, like Al Luganville along the way. You know, for whatever reason, I mean, you know, I told him no once, you know, he could have gone and probably found, you know, 10 different guys to go play for. But for whatever reason, he saw something in me, he continued to chase after me and, you know, kind of solicit that confidence in me uh, as he was chasing after me to get for me to come play for him in Europe. And it's just amazing when, like you said, when you're going through it, you never think anything of it. When you look back 10, 15, 20 years later, you're like so grateful for those people that helped to instill certain things in you or that, you know, that saw something in you and were willing to continue to, uh, to push and try to draw it out. Um, yeah. So you know, those are just a couple of people that really helped define who I was in my career. And then just, you know, those, those things that they did for me, it, it helps to define who you become later on and, and saying, then I want to be the person that gives somebody a chance, right? right. I wouldn't be here without certain people stepping in and going, Hey, I'm going to give Kurt a chance. I'm going to give Kurt a chance when nobody else will. And it's something that, you know, that I always look forward to now is when I put in opportunities or situations to be able to present something or take a chance on somebody. I want to be that same kind of guy in hopes that uh, that maybe somebody, you know, the next Kurt Warner, so to speak, can find their passion and get their opportunity to be able to shine. Yeah, I just had Mark D'Antonio on my show uh, recently. One of his sayings was, give me a place to stand and I'll move the world. And to your point about people allowing you to take a place and stand uh, is really powerful because let's face it, you know, Rocky start, right? Green Bay cuts you and, and, and we, you know, it's well known about, you know, your jobs outside of football. We don't really need to delve into that, but it's humble pie and it's, mm-hmm. and it's understanding that there's a time and a moment for everything. And then to me, the big shift, and you talk about NFL Europe, and I'm sure, I mean, you, 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 were, you were great over there for that year, you know, in Amsterdam. I mean, that was huge. But then, and, and I, I had Trent Green on the show about six months ago, and so from his perspective, I heard, you know, the whole scenario that took place uh, with his devastating injury, and then that allows you, this, this horrible thing that happens to one person allows another human to step in and and do something that is truly unique, truly special. So I want to hear from your perspective because of course Trent's story doesn't end, didn't end as well as right. as what you're about to say, but he still had mad respect for you. He still felt he was part of the process of 
teaching you and giving you uh, some some wisdom, even though he was, you know, personally he was set back. So from your perspective, how did how did you digest that whole thing? Apparently, well, because it it went really well and you won the Super Bowl. Yeah, I mean, you know, Trent's Trent's a phenomenal human being, and you know, it's so funny that a lot of his story up until that point, you know, with St. Louis paralleled mine in a lot of ways. Uh, I believe he was teaching. Uh, he was out of football teaching for a year yes. before he got back in with Washington and then got his opportunity with St. Louis. And so, you know, it was another version of, of my story with him getting that opportunity to become the starter and, and working his way to the top and then suffering that devastating injury. But once again, I mean, ironically, you know, going back to my Hall of Fame speech, I only thanked one teammate specifically and individually in my speech. Now, I mean, I was around so many great ones, Isaac Bruce and Orlando Pace and Marshall Falk and Larry Fitzgerald and Anquan Bold. I mean, I could go on and on about all the great players, uh, but it's the ultimate team game. So I never wanted to just pull out three or four guys, but the one guy that I did that I did address specifically in my Hall of Fame speech was Trent Green because he was kind of the forgotten guy um, but he did so much for our team, but he did so much for me personally, you know, it would have been easy. And I would have fully understood if, you know, Trent got to that spot and he suffered the injury and he was mad and he was angry and he was bitter. And then this guy that comes in and is having success with, you know, his team and what he had started, but there was none of that whatsoever with Trent Green. He was the ultimate pro. And I would continually ask him questions and, uh, you know, call him up. And he had been in the offense before. And I would ask him about nuances and little things within the offense. And every time he was more than gracious to just answer my questions, to help me out, to be there for me as I was, you know, going through all of this and trying to manage and handle all of this both on and off the football field. Uh, He was so instrumental in my journey and specifically in that first year Mm -hmm. with what we accomplished. And so I felt it was so important in my Hall of Fame speech to give credit where credit was due, is that uh, not only what he did for me, but he really helped to establish who I wanted to be moving forward. Because, you know, Lord, I, I mean, I ended up getting benched uh, three different times throughout my career uh, after that uh, mm-hmm. for young guys. And I found myself very similarly in a Trent Green situation, and I had to figure out how I was going to handle it. And how Trent handled it with me and what he did for me went a long ways in shaping how I would end up, you know, mentoring or, or, you know, being that. uh, Handle the situation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Help those young guys. And so unbelievable human being. We're still great friends to this day. And, you know, so much of it is because of his class and what he did for my career. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and the thing about Trent, too, is, you know, what I was saying is that I don't know how much you guys talked about it, but in, in that preseason up until when he got injured, I mean, Trent was playing unbelievable football. He was. I mean, he was. He was. He it was, was his team. Player. It was and, his team. I mean, it was almost dumbfounding that, you know, kind of, again, similar to my situation is you hadn't really heard of him. And then he became the starter and nobody knew what to expect. And then, man, he is just tearing it up. But. What he was doing playing football with that that unit, because the year before we were four and 12 yeah. and we had a lot of the same guys. We didn't know if we were going to be any good. Yes, we added Marshall and we got Tory in the draft and those things. But we still really had no idea what we were capable of. And Trent came in and instilled a confidence in us during that you know beginning part of training camp and in preseason. 
-hmm. that really would help carry us and catapult us mm -hmm. to the success that we had. Mm -hmm. And again, nobody remembers that. All they remember is me taking over and what wow. happened. But he had such a big hand in what we accomplished that year. And that's why I thought it was so important to make mm -hmm. sure that he understood that, that I knew. And yeah. that he understood that we all knew he was so instrumental in that success, in that period of time and what we accomplished. Because, you know, in this business, if yeah. you're not in the forefront, you know, what have you done for me lately? Yeah. It's easy to get pushed aside and forget all of that. And, you know, again, you kind of sit back in the back. Oh, man, that, that should have been my team. I should have been a part of that. And I always wanted Trent to really feel like he was a huge part of what we accomplished that year, but also what I was able to accomplish throughout my career because he treated that situation with such class. I can tell you from my conversation with him that he he feels very, you know, he took ownership of, of that experience as well. He he felt that he was, you know, despite what happened to him, that he was able to in some some way help you. And that's, you know, that is evidenced by what you said in your speech about him. So so I, I, I you should feel good about that. You should feel comfortable knowing that Trent definitely has a gratitude for, for the experience, even though it was bad. But he also continued and had really had a pretty good run in Kansas City when I was there, you know, so. Very good. And that was, you know, one of the things that, you know, at the end of the day, I, I felt so glad about. Because, yeah, yeah I said, I, I could easily have seen Trent Green, you know, getting a bust in Canton um, had he not gotten injured and made a run with that team. And so, as you said, he went on to Kansas City and, and was able to uh, to do some really, really good things there. So uh, that was fun to be able to watch him and cheer for him from afar. But, you know, just mm -hmm. going back to your point of, of when that all happened and when it all went down, yep. you know, what a lot of people don't know or, or think about, Morton, is that, you know, a lot of people, you know, see the stuff that you talk about, sitting on the bench in college and being cut by Green Bay and working in a grocery store and arena football and blah, blah, blah. You know, what they don't realize is that when I played football, like when I was actually between the lines playing football, the one year I played in college, you mentioned it, I was the player of the year in our conference. Uh, I played three years in arena football. We played in the championship twice, and I was the best quarterback in the league during that time. Same happened in Europe. And so every time I had played football and the ball was in my hands, I was very successful. Mm -hmm. So when I got my opportunity in St. Louis, I know a lot of people thought, oh, this guy's got no chance. Like, who is this guy? You know, how can he possibly think he can play at this level? Where all I thought to myself was, oh, I got a ball in my hands and we're playing football again. I'm going to be successful. I am going to play good football. Love it. Because that's Love it. new. But it's yeah. so funny because everybody makes such a huge deal of my journey. And I get it. And I understand it. And it's, it's rare and it's unique. But they didn't think I could play it all. And that's why it was so incredible. For me, it was like, it was a great run, but yeah. it was not anything I didn't expect. I mean, I always played well. And so it's funny when, you know, when people, you know, bring up that part of the journey, you know, they like want me to be in awe of what I accomplished or what happened that season. And for me, it was like, I mean, it was just, it was just football. And, and yeah, I, you know, I could play the game. And so, um, you know, that was, you know, to me, as much as everybody made it a big deal, it yeah. wasn't quite as big a deal to me because, as you know, I mean, you put a ball down on the tee and tell me to kick it through the goalpost. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I, I don't care if I'm in a field. I don't care if I'm playing arena football. I don't care if I'm playing in the NFL. That is what I do. And I felt the same thing about playing quarterback. It just so happened that 
nobody else really knew that about me because of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of the path that, uh, that it took me to get there. I, I'm very thankful that you're saying this because our listeners will, will it'll resonate because there is a stigma there about, you know, a lot of these journeys, these life journeys of, of ball players. And what we forget sometimes is that behind this guy, the, the reason he's in the Hall of Fame or the reason he had a great journey is because from the very start, he was blessed with some unbelievable skill, unbelievable discipline. He was a great athlete, built differently, uh, willing to go places other people were not willing to go and prepare in a different way to become elite. So when we, you know, when we write the, the Kurt Warner story, many of these stories of these, not only Hall of Famers, but elite legends of the game, we, we ought to remember, and to your point, we should remember that there has there was from the very start a different dude, a different dude who had the discipline, the skill set, and and tenacity and will and athleticism, who was a good athlete, probably the best athlete in high school, okay? Probably the best athlete in college on his team, best player on, on that team. And there's a reason it was great. So Yes, I appreciate you saying that. And, um, you know, there was one other guy that I want, wanted you to talk about a little bit in St. Louis. And you mentioned some of the guys. Number one, the players you had. Marshall Falk was in his prime. Isaac Bruce, prime. Torrey Holt, prime. Hall of Fame left tackle Orlando Pace, prime. Protecting your blind side. That's four Hall of Famers on one side of the ball. And, well, with Torrey Holt, five, right? Yeah. Hopefully so. Yeah. I mean, and then you had Dick Vermeil as the head coach. That's yeah. no slouch right there either. <laughs> no, come I mean, on. Dick, Dick Vermeil should be a Hall of Famer. Should be a Hall of Famer. Right. I mean, to be able to do it in you know two different eras, two different teams, twenty years apart. Um, yeah, no, no, no doubt about it. At, at what point? Yeah. So at what point are you realizing? Okay, this is this is going to be a unique year. This is going to be special. And I mean, I know you, you, your relationship with Dick Vermeil is close, it's tight. And, you know, I had him in Kansas City for two years. Tremendous coach, tremendous person, tremendous person, you know, tremendous man. Talk about Dick Vermeil a little bit and then talk about that 99 team, you know, and that whole run. Yeah, I mean, Dick, Dick, as you said, is, is a special human being. And you know, that's how I would classify him first is that, yeah, I believe he's a Hall of Fame coach, but he is a special, special human being. And what made him, to me, a great coach, I mean, amongst other things, was just his love for his players. You know, never been around a coach that loved his players and truly had the best interest of his players in mind in every moment. Yes, he was competitive. Yes, he wanted to win. All of those things. But he truly loved his players. Yeah. And you could see that uh, on a daily basis. Um, you know, we always laugh and joke about the way that Dick Vermeer would cry. And wears emotions on his sleeve. But that was genuine. He truly did. You know, he felt, um, you know, tears of joy when one of his players did something or, or got some sort of accomplishment. I mean, he was just as excited uh, for them as he would be for himself. Mm -hmm. When, you know, when something negative happened, when he had to cut one of his players. And it didn't matter how good the player was. Didn't matter. You know, everybody knew that that player wasn't going to help us win football games. That didn't matter. To know that he had to cut someone and somehow affect, you know, that person's life or that person's dream, uh, that truly impacted him in a profound way. Yeah. And that was who Dick Vermeil was. You know, every player that ever played for him 
would run through a wall for him. That mm-hmm. loved to have him on the sideline and wanted to do anything and everything for him because they knew that he was doing anything and everything for them to be successful. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's another guy is that there was really no reason, nothing that I really did to make Dick Vermeil keep me with the St. Louis Rams. Um, you know, that, that preseason, I threw four passes in one preseason game. So you know, there was nothing that stood out. It was simply just Dick Vermeil saying, you know, I just, I recognize something different about that guy. And I, I'm not going to let him go until I just at least see if what I think or what my intuition is, is true. And so it was really a gut feeling for him to take a chance on someone like me, you know, in a situation where he was probably going into his last year with the Rams, uh, was probably going to be fired if they didn't have success. And who knows if he would have coached beyond that. Um, so to take a chance on, on a young guy and to keep a young guy on the squad as he was going into this stage of his career, um, you know, I'll always be indebted to him for that. But really, it was just about how he loved me and cared about me and cared about his team. Um, and, you know, just there was just nobody better to play for. And there's no greater coach or friend to have than Dick Vermeil. So I'm just so grateful. And, you know, I, I think, you know, one way that I could put it um, more is that, you know, when I look back on my career, I feel like I spent a decade with Dick Vermeil. I, I feel like he coached me for a big portion of, of my career. That was the profound impact that he had on me. And when you actually go back and look at it, I really only played, I mean, I played for him for two years because I was on the team in 98 and then the year 99, but I only played for him really for one year. We only had that kind of relationship for one year in 99. And then he retired after we won the Super Bowl. And I, I, every time I think about that, it just makes me shake my head. Like, are you kidding me? I feel like I've, you know, been connected with this guy for so long in such an intimate way yet we only were together in truly that fashion for one year. And it speaks to the kind of impact that he had on me and the impact that he had on his players. And so, uh, you know, I can't say enough good things about Dick Vermeil. I love that man. So grateful to him. Pretty pretty interesting what you're saying there about him because the experiences with Dick Vermeil, as I remember him, I was with him in Kansas City in 2002, 2003. Right. And you're right, man. You're right that he, the experiences were so intense and the lessons, you know, there were so many takeaways. Mm-hmm on a daily basis with him yeah. uh, and his staff, but mostly with him. Like when he, when he stood at the podium at the team meeting, it was, there was like, you knew that there was rare moments there, you yeah. know? Yeah. And no, no something, doubt. he loved his numbers and his stats. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know, oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> I, I still remember the first speech that he gave at training camp. It was all about turnovers and he talked for like an hour and a half. You know, just the importance of turnovers. And I know, like, we all know the turnover ratio is so important. But the first night of training camp, we're all just like, but yeah, he had his binder and he flipped it open. And oh my gosh, yeah, so many great. But you know, and something you probably, you might not even know more. You know, the crazy thing too was that the year before in 1998, when we were, you know, the 4 and 12 team, there came a point in time in the season because Dick was really known for his hard. Hard, 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 hard. It's hard training camps coming from the old school in the 80s and all of that. You had mutiny on the bounty. Exactly. That's what I was getting at is that we're in the middle (laughs) of the season, probably four games in. And, you know, this is my first year. I just got to to the NFL and I'm like, hey, man, whatever you need me to do, I'm in. 
And all of a sudden, these the captains of the team are coming and saying, hey, we're not going out to practice today. And I'm like, well, what? Hold on. You might be able to do that, but I am not skipping practice. I'm just going to do whatever. I am just lining up to do whatever I'm supposed to do so I can stay here. And my the guys are like, no, no one is going out to practice today. We are not going out to practice until we talk to Coach Vermeil and we get some things straightened out. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, is this really what the NFL is all about? we got a bunch of prima donnas that don't want to work so hard. So we had this, you know, this meeting where it was all 53 players and then Dick Vermeil was up, uh, you know, up by the podium on, on the front. And, man, it was going back and forth and, and – Players were saying, we're not doing this and can't believe you do that. And Dick was firing back. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, is this what the NFL is all about? I mean, at that point in time, I thought Dick was going to get thrown out of there. You know, guys weren't going to play for him. We weren't going to show up on Sundays. So, you know, here we go from that year and that situation to a year later. Everybody loving Dick Vermeil and, you know, the run that we made and us really getting to know him. Uh, he made some changes uh, to his credit. Uh, made some changes, brought in Mike Marks, kind of changed the way that we did things. But it was so hold on right there. Hold, hold on right there. You talk about the changes. So let me guess. I'll take a wild guess what the changes were. All right, no full pad goal line and short yardage. <laughs> that was definitely, no. definitely a part of it, yes. Because <laughs> yes. I remember, man, Wednesdays and Thursdays, remember full pads. Well, you know, and, you just know, lining up and cracking camp, heads. I mean, and we had, you know, two a days in training camp, of course. But our practices would be like three hours long. Yeah. You know, we would have, you know, two or three sessions of seven on seven, two or three sessions of team. And everybody's like, oh, my gosh, we are on the field all the time. And so, you know, the next year, man, we were getting out off the field in an hour and a half. And we were moving and he was pushing the tempo and he was changing the way, like you said, not as much contact, not as much beating each other up throughout the week, uh, just made kind of a 180. Um, so it's just in, incredible to, to when you have great coaches yeah. that are willing to hear and listen and make changes. And in doing that, how that can bring an entire team and organization together. And, and uh, you know, Dick, you know, unbelievable, you know, where we went from 98 to 99 and the kind of impact that he had on the players. When I think back to whatever that was, week four or five, and like you said, it was mutiny and it was it was getting ugly. And to see how he was able to flip that and change that because of the person that he was and, uh, and being able to listen to his team was uh, was pretty incredible. One of the guys that was his like right hand man was a great mentor of mine back in Atlanta in 95, mid 90s. And you're going to recognize this name when I say it to you. And I know you have an opinion about Frank Gans Sr. Oh, Frank was awesome. Frank was awesome. We lost him way, way too soon. Yes, God uh, bless him. Talk about a phenomenal motivator. Um, you know, he was he was incredible that, you know, as a quarterback, I never had to sit in on the special teams meeting, right? We were always going off and doing our own thing and getting prepared. But inevitably, we would always sneak into those meetings. Oh, we wanted yeah. to hear Coach Gans talk, and we wanted to hear what he was using and how he was teaching. And just a phenomenal, phenomenal yeah. human being. And a lot of people will know – you know, the Bob and Weave, the, the, you know, the dance that we did as the greatest show on turf back in the day. And yeah, from my I remember that. I wasn't in the meeting, but it came from a Frank Gans motivational uh, talk that he was given to the special teamers where I think it was Muhammad Ali, but it was some boxing match that yeah. he was taking them through and, and talking them through. And that's where the Bob and Weave dance came from, uh, was from that motivational talk by him. But 
just a, a phenomenal coach, first and foremost, but another guy that was a phenomenal human being and a phenomenal motivator. Yeah. I'll never forget that uh, this was in 98, or maybe it was right at the end of the 98 season that I was out running some sprints uh, on the field, and he came out and he started running too, because I'm sure you remember, he was always in great shape and always moving and shaking. I don't know if he had the... Uh, if he had the bullhorn, the uh, he had the, the speakers on the back, back speakers on his back when he was dead, when he was coaching. But he was always he was always going, um, and so he was out there running with me. And I'll never forget it was in, in '98 before I had ever taken over. And he basically said to me, one of those guys that just gives you that confidence along the way when you think nobody's noticing. We were out there running, and he just said, "Young man, I would go to battle with you right now and any day of the week." I believe you could step in right now and be successful in this business and at this level. And like I said, we hadn't had a bunch of interaction, much interaction, wasn't in special teams meeting. I hadn't played much football, but that was such a huge vote of confidence for me because I respected him so much that it was just another thing that just kind of gave me confidence for when that opportunity would come. That man, I knew there was people around me that believed in what I was doing and, and that I could play it at the level that I did in 99. So, uh, yes, I was fortunate, Fantastic. very fortunate to be around uh, Coach Gans. And, um, you know, for the period that I was, and as I said, we, we lost him way too early because he was incredibly impactful man. Yeah, he said something I'll never forget when I was with him, and I had one of my best years with him as well. He said what a lot of little is. And a lot of times he didn't say a lot of stuff, you know, he, but when he spoke, it was, it was poignant. It was to the point and it it resonated and you had to think about what he said because there was a deeper meaning there. And so I really liked that when he said that to me, he said, it's in the details, you know, that's where it's at. It's the 1% every day. What a lot, a little is. Yeah. The accumulation of small wins equals great success and all those things that he believed in. Well, when I think of you, I think of that saying that Frank Gantz Sr. uttered back in 95 to me what a lot of little is because you were step-by-step consistently great at the process. I think the humble beginnings allowed you to really appreciate the process and the quality of the process. I felt like you made sure that with the confidence you had and the skill set you had that the process was going to be great. And because of that, you know, the end result was sublime, sublime, my friend. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree, is that you learn about those details. And, you know, I think that's one of the similarities between like a kicker and a quarterback. You don't really understand the details and the nuances that go into it mm-hmm. until you actually pick up a ball or you got, you know, you, you got to kick a ball through a goalpost. Mm-hmm. You understand that you have to be so precise in so many different ways. It's not just... You know, because it looks easy. You guys go and kick these things through the goalposts, and you're just like, okay, well, yeah, I could do that, right? I mean, it looks easy. Where somebody goes back and drops back and throws a 10-yard pass, and you just say to yourself, oh, God, I could do that. But then when you put it all together, and then you put the situation that people are in, and the, and the fact that you have to do it in a certain amount of time, how quickly you have to trust it. And, I mean, there are so many little nuances and details that go into our Positions, And not that it's not every position, but I do believe kickers and quarterbacks, there's a lot more that goes into it from a nuance standpoint, a detail standpoint than a lot of other positions. And you learn that at different points along the way is Mm -hmm. how important those details are and how important practice is. 
right? I mean, I think we would always joke, like, what are the kickers doing in practice? Like, what, what the heck? Uh, you know, we want their life. You know, we want, we want to be able to do that. And, you know, we think about that from one perspective, but then we always come back and go, man, but, you know, with two seconds on the clock and you got to boot a 45-yarder perfectly with people rushing you in between, I mean, outside of the wind, you know, you're like, but I'm not sure I want to do it in that situation. <laughs> and, you know, because again, there's so many things that you have to take into consideration with that. And, you know, that became one thing that, um, that I always prided myself on. And maybe because it was where I came from, maybe it was because, you know, I wasn't the greatest athlete, you know, where I could get away with, with certain things. So I had to be really, really good at the mm -hmm. things I was good at. But that was something that I always worked on. And, you know, I always told myself, you know, even like in the off season, I would always mm -hmm. go in the off season and say, okay, I'm going to work on everything, but there's two things I definitely want to work on. The first thing I want to work on what I'm really, really good at. Like the things that separate me mm -hmm. will always need to separate me. So I'm always going to work on those things to make sure that I'm continually climbing or able to separate myself. And then I always worked on the thing that I thought was my biggest weakness. Mm -hmm. is that I said, but I never want this to be a liability either for me personally or for my team. So even though I not, may not be great, you know, with my footwork or whatever, I was always working on that in the off season. So I could do enough and it, could ne it would never be a liability for me. Uh, and so it was working on the details of yeah. the footwork and making sure my technique was always right on and making sure that I could, I could be accurate in every situation uh, to make up for whatever my weaknesses were. But it goes back to your point. It was just the, those little things and, and the details of those little things that I said, I, I had to recognize those things. And I always had to make sure that I was fine tuning those things at all times. And, you know, one thing, uh, you know, I was just talking about it recently is that I never waited to be coached either. I think there's a lot of players that, you know, as they get further and further up, that they wait to be coached. Like, I'm just going to play my game and I'm going to do my thing. And as long as a coach doesn't say anything to me, I guess I'm doing just fine and I'll just keep doing my thing. I was one of those guys that never waited to be coached. I always wanted to self-scout myself. I always wanted to look at things and, and try to figure out, okay, why am I not doing this as well? Or what am I getting away from when I'm watching film? And, and you know, how is that affecting me on the field? And so I was one of those guys that was very detail-oriented in watching myself too Me and too. you know it's studying myself and making sure that those details that I didn't have to wait for somebody to say hey you know your arms dropping a little bit or, or your footwork's getting a little away from you or your balances man I wanted to be able to recognize that stuff in myself so I could improve those things by myself and never had to wait to get coached in those areas which I think is a is a huge key we talk about oh, perseverance yeah. or discipline or, or self-motivation whatever those things are you know, that to me oftentimes can really separate people is mm -hmm. the willingness to truly work when nobody's telling you to work. Oh, yeah. When nobody's telling you how to work, to be able to study yourself or, or the, you know, your role so mm -hmm. well that mm -hmm. you understand those details and you can recognize when those details are off. So mm -hmm. you don't have to wait to be coached and you can continue to get better. I marked every kick. I put everything on paper. Every single practice kick, every single game kick, performance feedback sheet. I had a daily log. I had goals that were specific for that week. I had big overarching goals that were for the season, that were for my career. But most important to your point about the details of the job, on a daily basis, I documented everything. 
and I had three different camera angles. I have books and binders here. I mean, it'll give Dick Vermeil a run for his money, Kurt. <laughs> I'm telling well, you, man. And obviously, that's why you played over two decades, right? <laughs> I mean, 25 you, years, you know, but uh, even it, as you it, got older, it kept me dialed in. Yeah, it kept me dialed in. might have diminished, right? You might not have had the leg or whatever. Correct. But those but details would always separate you, yeah. right? That, that was the thing that always separated you that we knew, hey, from this yard mark to this yard mark, Morton's automatic. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how long he's played, he's going to be automatic we, because the details were so yeah. good in what you did. We communicated uh, before the game. I would go up to Frank Gans, for example, and say, and he would ask me, he said, what's the yard line? I would say 35 yard line going this way. And if there was a wind, I would say 32 yard line going that way. That way, the offensive coordinator knew exactly where he had to get to to get his three points versus okay, we're punting or we might go for it on first, you know, on a third and short. So that was some powerful, productive communication, you know, and that's that's something that we practice quite a bit. So St. Louis was a tremendous success for you in 99. You go back to the Super Bowl with Mike Martz and you lose to the Pats. Uh, you were heavily favored in that game. But the banner you do get with Dick Vermeil is that it's kind of weird for me to think of the St. Louis Rams and now it's of course the LA Rams and that banner is that banner hanging in SoFi Stadium? I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, you know what I'm know. saying? They, they, just weird. It, they just opened the stadium, and I'm, I, I would assume it is. I think you know any of these teams, um, you know they they hold on to their history as yeah. best they can. So yeah. I would assume that it is. Um, yeah. But as you know, we didn't have any fans in the stadiums last year. Um, yeah. So I'm not. I'm not really sure. Uh, if it is, I would just have to guess, being that it's the only championship the Rams organization has, um, you know, the Super Bowl era, that that it probably hangs in there in there somewhere. All right, if I'd have told you on the day you signed in Arizona in 2005 that by 2008 you'd be playing in a Super Bowl with that group, you would have said what to me? Okay, I'm with you. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, well, I mean, you, you know, the thing is, Mort, is that I understand your point in the question is that you know, when I went there, everybody thought I would never have success again. When I went to Arizona, nobody ever thought Arizona would have success. And so uh, so I understand the, the viewpoint. Uh, but my mindset never changed no matter where I was, is that I always believed that I could help an organization to get better. I always believed that I had in me, you know, what, what had always been in me and the ability to be able to lead and, and to play this game and to play well in big moments which I think is always huge in, in shaping a culture. You have to have people that when the going gets tough and when everybody's looking around going, okay, what do we do now? What do we do in this? That you had to have people that could step up and handle that moment. So, yeah, I mean, I understand how, how far-fetched it was if, if people would have said that. Mm -hmm. um, but I fully believed that I could be a part of helping that organization do things that they had never done before. You did. It was definitely a challenge. The mindset, the organization, the way the organization was ran, the people that were in the organization, both management all the way down to players, they never really had an expectation. And so, you know, which was so weird to me because, you know, as a competitor, we've always had expectations. We've always believed that we could win and wanted to win championships that I never could understand getting to the place where it was so down for so long that that never became an expectation anymore that you never believed or even thought about that, you know, where we always would say, you know, all 32 teams believe they're going to win the Super Bowl, you know, at the, at the start of training camp every year. 
Well, Arizona didn't. I mean, that was one place that I went that nobody believed we were going to win a championship. We might have yeah. said it, um, but nobody believed it. And it was really strange to me because uh, I just thought that was how every competitor believed. And I never thought you could go through a period of time where it would shape you in the other direction. But that's really what had happened there, is that there was no belief in what we could accomplish. You know, there was no expectation for us to compete for championships when I got there. It was almost just like everybody was just surviving. You know, individuals wanted to play well and get recognition, but we never really believed that our team would do much. And so when I saw that very early on, that became the big challenge for me, is that I wanted to be a part of shaping the culture in a different way, of changing the perception of what the Arizona Cardinals were all about. And in the process, I was going to have to reshape what people thought about me because, you know, after St. Louis, people thought, oh, well, you know, he's done, it's over. You know, it was a great run in St. Louis, but you know, he won't ever do that again. But it was more about, you know, trying to lead an organization and change the perspective of the organization. And then I just kind of felt, well, I would come along. I mean, I, I knew I could play. I knew I, you know, I hadn't changed much. If not, I, I might have been a better quarterback then than I was in, in St. Louis. But my motivation was not so much for me to prove people wrong. It was really just to go, hey, this is what I'm all about. This is what, to me, what sport is all about, is coming in and being a part of a unit that does something that nobody ever expected them to do, that starts to believe in a way that they never believed before. And that became my big challenge in Arizona. Uh, and I'm so grateful for my time there and, and the people that I was with and, and, you know, and some of the coaches that came in and helped to change that perspective within that organization because now everybody sees that organization completely differently than the way they saw it before I got there. I take great pride in that. Yeah, I mean, so it's interesting that you said you were, you felt you might have been a better quarterback there. How so? Uh, you know, I, I just think we all, as we age and mature and as we experience different things, we come to understand, you know, what goes into the game. You know, early on, you know, I think sometimes you fall in love with the flashy. I want to make the big throw. I want to do this. You know, you, you may be a little more cocky and say, I can I can do this and I can do that. And then as you mature and, and you come into, I think, you know, who you really are, you start you stop worrying about that. And you say to yourself, man, I'll take 10 hitches, five-yard hitches down the field if we're going to put touchdown on the board. I don't need to make the 50-yard throw. I just need to do what I'm supposed to do. I, I call it making the layups. And I just felt the older I got, the better I got at just seeing the game, understanding the game, just playing the position and not worrying about any of the fluff that comes with it. And in doing that, I just felt like, you know, I really felt like I was unstoppable. I felt like I had the skills and the ability to control the football where I wanted to control it. I had enough talent around me uh, to be able to be successful there. And I knew how to play the game. I knew how to manage the game better than I did when I was younger. And uh, and so I looked at myself as a more complete quarterback in the true sense of what a quarterback is than I was early on. I was good early on. I mean, I I could throw the football and we had success, but a lot of that was, you know, caution to the wind. And it was just like, man, I'm taking chances and I'm going to make every throw and I'm just going to whatever. And it was fun and it was great. But to me, you know, you, I couldn't have done that with most teams. I could do that with our team because we were so talented and because I was at a good place in my career and, and, and we could put pressure on teams that way. If I had played that way in Arizona, we would have never been successful. 
because we weren't talented enough to do that. I had to evolve and become a better player and a better leader and a better quarterback for that team to be successful than the team in St. Louis. And that was the evolution process. And I, I think all players go through it, you know, and, but it's recognizing that and being able to get better at those other things. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to rely on physical skill or, or, you know, or hoping you had a great team around you. It was being able to elevate the play of everybody or elevate the play of your team by being a more complete player. So the early version, Kurt Warner, was like Brett Favre or Mahomes. The later version was Tom Brady. Very much so, I think. You know, and again, I had some of Tom in me early on, but we just we played in such a way that, you know, it's funny. My, my son, a couple of years ago, uh, you know, he was looking back, I don't know, the stats or MVPs or something. He goes, Dad, you won the MVP when you threw 22 interceptions. And I said, son. I won the MVP in between those 22 interceptions. Okay, with everything I did, Great. I won those 22 interceptions. But nonetheless, the point being relevant was that I played the game not worried about throwing interceptions. I didn't care. If I was putting pressure on the defense and they happened to get lucky and get an interception, that's okay because I know they were afraid the next time I went out there that I was going to take another chance or I was going to go past them and I wasn't going to be afraid to make any throw. Yeah, so I played the I like game that. that way when I was in St. Louis. I, I played the game very aggressively, and I knew I would make more plays than mistakes, and I didn't mm-hmm. care about that stuff. But as you evolve and as you go to different places, you understand that you can't always play the game that way. And yeah. I had to become a better quarterback and more complete because my team needed me to be something different for us to have success. And that's just, again, it's, it's part of being a leader. It's part of the process. It's part of maturing. To the point where I don't just go out there every time and go, I'm just more talented than everyone else. And I'll just show you on every throw. No, I got to understand what my team needs from me. And I got to be the best version of me for that Arizona team to be successful. And so it helped me to grow and forced me to be a better quarterback. And I do believe I became a better quarterback in the later stages of my career. Hey, I know it's draft week. So let's finish up, if you don't mind. I'll get a, just a few opinions on the 2021 NFL draft. And then I have a little name game. I'm just going to throw a couple of names at you, and you can just kind of whatever comes to mind. So Trevor Lawrence going to live up to the hype. Will he do that? I am one of those guys that I hate putting expectations on college kids. I know. You know, I hear people talking, man, this is the fourth best prospect we've had in the last 30 years. And, and we get, you know, it is so hard to make the jump from college to the pros. And it is so tough because situation is so important, right? You're not going to always be on the most talented team. You're going to have to overcome different things. I like Trevor Lawrence. I think he's the best quarterback, the most complete quarterback in this draft. I hope he lives up to the expectations that everybody's putting on him. But when you start throwing him in the category of, you know, John Elway and, you know, Peyton Manning and Andrew Luck, that is some big shoes to live up to. And as much as I like him and as much as I hope he lives up to all that, I'm not one that likes to put those expectations on any young kid. If yeah. you can come in and be a starter in this league for 10 years, you've met expectations. You've yeah. you know, had a good career. Yeah. You know, if you can be Peyton Manning, you know, more power to you. God bless you. Because yeah. there's only one big Not and many so, of those. I do like Trevor. I like what he brings to the table. I like what I've seen in college. But 
I just I'm not going to anoint any of these guys because I think it's too much to lay at the feet of these young guys before they've ever taken a snap in the NFL. And I don't ever want people to be a bust because we put such high expectations on them that they yeah. didn't fulfill those expectations. Uh, a really good player, really good player in college. Can't wait to watch him in Jacksonville, but I'm just not going to you know, place that on the young man quite yet. Yeah, and same then with Zach Wilson. He's being compared, right, to Patrick Mahomes. and Right. Not fair. It, it's not fair. And that's the, the worst part about doing draft coverage is, right, We they always want to comp. And, of course, you can only comp, uh, you know, players that have been successful in the NFL. I'll never forget a few years back when I was doing the, the draft for the NFL Network. And Marcus Mariota was one of the quarterbacks coming out in the draft. And they asked me to do a comp to Marcus Mariota. And I said, okay, Alex Smith. Alex Smith is my cop for him because they're athletic, you know, how they play the game. I see them more as, you know, what we would term game managers. That doesn't mean they can't be good. Just, you know, not guys that necessarily are going to be dynamic and win games with your right arm. And I remember my producer coming to me and goes, no way, scratch it. We are not comparing anyone. We're not doing a cop to Alex Smith because Alex Smith wasn't a, a Hall of Fame guy. And I'm like, but that's how I see this guy. I mean, Alex is a good quarterback. He's a good starting but that's too often what we do, right? If we're going to compare somebody, we got to compare them to one of the best players in the league. And as you said, it's not, it's not fair. You know, with Zach Wilson, I know exactly what you're talking about because I remember watching Patrick Mahomes in college and I remember thinking, oh, he's really good at some of this, but there's some other deficiencies there. I'm not really sure what he'll be at the next level. Then we see him for two years in the NFL and we're like, holy crap. You know, he had all that physical ability, but now he's got – this mental ability and creativity that we never saw before, we couldn't really see in college, and now he's the best player in our league. And so now we see Zach Wilson, we go, oh, he reminds me of Patrick Mahomes in college. So now we let our imagination get wild a little bit and go, and then if he can just be a little bit like Patrick Mahomes in terms of creativity and his mental awareness, oh my gosh, we've got a great player. And so I think we're putting that on Zach Wilson in an unfair manner, like you said, just in hopes that he's got the physical gifts. We see that. Now he can just have a little of that mental, but I have no idea if he does. Yeah. But we're going to catapult him to number two after one year starting in college, and we're going to expect him to be the savior of the Jets based on, to me, more speculation and imagination because we saw Patrick Mahomes do it yeah. when we should be sitting here going – we can never compare anybody to Patrick Mahomes. That is a rare beast right there. Yeah. And to put that on Zach Wilson is unfair. But all things considered, I think we've all done that. And our imagination is kind of running away with us. And the Jets are going to take him, I believe. And uh, and I can't wait to see if he's got a little bit of Patrick Mahomes in him. Yeah. But, I mean, I mean, come on. I mean, look, it's just impossible to live up to what Patrick's done so quickly and, and plus he's going to the jets right patrick went to the chiefs who was already a playoff team and we're you know i mean it's just there's so many factors here that we have to take into consideration and we just don't because we look at the prospect and i'm excited because i think zach wilson does some really rare and unique things but he's another guy i mean it's just it's more on speculation and off one year in college than it is truly knowing what he's going to be at the next level and that's what makes it really, really tough. But as we know, the Jets, if they go there, they're going to have high expectations for him. Um, I, mean, I had some ta have left tackle. I, mean, I have a left tackle. Yeah, he's going to have to live up to it. So 
What about uh, the Patriots? You think they they try to move up and take a quarterback? It wouldn't surprise me. You know, the question becomes, you know, moving up now, it costs you so much. Yeah. I mean, you have to give up so much to get, you know, just to move up, you know, where they're at. What are they at? 15, I think. And to move all the way up into the top 10, I don't know if they've got enough capital to give up to get up there. But I wouldn't be surprised if they tried because, you know, it seems like a perfect fit with those five guys sitting there. The draft fascinates me because, you know, there's so many teams that need so many different things. And do you fall in love with the shiny pieces? Do you go offensive line, even though it's not sexy at times when we know at the end of the day, if you have a good offensive line, your team will be successful. That 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 is held true for decades and decades and will always hold true. But, you know, you got all these shiny pieces out there with the quarterbacks and the wide receivers and stuff. Um, that I can't wait to see how it all plays out. Who do you think is off the board in the first round who's not a quarterback? Who's the first guy off the board non-quarterback? As ironic as it is because, you know, we haven't had a tight end really go that high. I think Kyle Pitts from uh, Florida is probably the first guy off the board uh, from a playmaking standpoint. Um, you know, because everybody you – know, to me, the tight end position is the biggest mismatch in football. Um, you know, trying to cover them with safeties and linebackers. It's why you see these guys, you know, the Darren Wallers and the Kelseys and the Kittles, you know, they're almost impossible to cover because you don't know how to match up to them. So I think Kyle Pitts might be the first guy off the board um, that's not a quarterback. And then, you know, got some really good wide receivers as well, because I think it's going to be a heavy offensive draft. Of course, we'll have, you know, we'll have edge guys that will go uh, because, you know, that seems to be what it is, right? Quarterbacks, wide receivers, edge rushers, edge rushers, and then offensive tackles and, and cornerbacks. You know, there's a couple of tackles in the, you know, in this thing that that you know people are excited about that could go fairly high as well. Um, so if you don't have pitch, you may have an offensive tackle that goes high. But uh, I think there's going to be a big run early on 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 offensive players with those wide yeah. receivers and quarterbacks out there. You mentioned Larry Fitzgerald, so let's get into the name game, three names, because you've talked about so many of these people already. But talk to me about Larry Fitzgerald. What comes to mind when I say uh, the great future Hall of Famer there? Wow. I mean, just, you know, first of all, classy individual, uh, a pro's pro, always carried himself extremely well. So that's the first thing that always comes to mind. Mm-hmm. But I, I think the other thing that comes to mind, I would say evolution is that to watch him from his second year in the league to become one of the greatest wide receivers to ever play this game, to Mm -hmm. watch him evolve as a player and to watch him, you know, you talked about the details, to put the details into his craft. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was there, he only wanted to play wide receiver, meaning outside wide. He's like, Kurt, I don't want to go inside. I don't want to do anything else. I just want to stay out here and do my thing. And I'm like, Larry, we could get you so many more catches. And And he's like, nope. I don't want to go in there. I'm, I'm really good out here. I just want to stay here. And then Coach Bruce Arians comes to Arizona and basically pushes him to the inside. And he has to redefine how he plays the game. And he has some of his best seasons from a production standpoint inside playing the game. And his willingness to work, to evolve, to attack the details is something that I'll never forget about, uh, you know, about Larry and why he's become one of the greats. And it's such a hard thing for people to be able to do. And it's such a hard thing for people to embrace is to realize, okay, I can't do what I wanted to do like early in my career. If I Mm -hmm. want to stay and play at a high level, I've got to evolve and change. And he did that at an extremely high level 
And it's one of the reasons he's played as long as he has and is so well-respected and has such a productive career. Well, the big guy that took care of your blindside, Orlando Pace. Oh, I mean, just um, invisible would be my, my word that I would use for him because he made whoever he was going against invisible. Uh, you know, every week, you know, you would go into game plan meetings and, and all your coaches would inevitably have certain people circled. Okay, we got to know where this guy is at all times. We got to pay attention to that guy. And we never circled a guy that was across from, from Orlando because we never worried about it. He made everybody invisible on that side and obviously made what I did so much easier and, you know, made my ability to trust the guys up front so easy um, that he was just incredible. He's a, he's a gentle giant, unbelievable human being, just great personality, but on the football field, just uh, he was incredible. And, and as I said, he made the opponent invisible over there, which uh, which was my greatest friend. Good thing to have that extra regular season game being added moving forward? Um, you know, I don't ever like to have guys play extra games. I, I, I like the 16-game format. I like the fact that every game means something. And I like preseason. I like the fact that you knew you had a chance to kind of ramp up your game to get ready for the regular season. And so I think cutting back on the preseason games puts more pressures on, pressure on veterans to have to play more in those preseason games. So that changes that. Then we add another game to the mix at the end of the season. Wow. You know, with all the injuries and as big and as fast as guys have become, I don't like it um, as a fan, as a guy that covers the game, um, you know, knowing what it means to the game because people love the NFL. I get it. And, you know, and I'm going to enjoy it and I'm going to appreciate it like I did the extra playoff game last I love football, and so more is better for all of us. As an ex-player, give me more. Yeah, as an ex-player, I'm like, no, don't change it. 16 games to me was perfect. The preseason was perfect. There's a lot of money in the game. I would rather just see the preservation of players more than the money. Although, again, I get it, and I know people will say it's just one more game, and you guys make a lot of money anyways. I get all that, and I, you know, I can I can understand the justification. I just as a player. I know what guys' bodies are like when their careers are done. Yeah. So the more you can eliminate the banging and the, and the beating up of the body, I'm all for that. So that's my approach. Even though I'll uh, I'll be covering every one of the season, every every yeah, one of the games, and uh, and I'll be watching intently, and, and I can't wait. You'll be rocking and rolling on NFL Network. That is for sure. Uh, you were one of the greatest, Kurt. Uh, your journey has been so unique. Who's the greatest quarterback today? Well, I mean, you know, you're still going to give a nod to Tom Brady just because he's Tom Brady. And because he's playing, he's the best that's ever played. But the best quarterback going right now is Patrick Mahomes. And to me, it's it's a combination of he's so ridiculously talented. And I don't know if we've ever seen anyone as talented at throwing the football as he is. And if we have, you know, there's a few rare ones with the John Elways and the Marinos and the, uh, you know, Aaron Rodgers and those guys. But he couples that with a, a, you know, a great understanding of how to play the game mentally. And that's what you, we don't very often see those two things together. Um, you know, I talk about his creativity. He sees the game creatively, meaning if I draw up a play on the board, I know how it's supposed to work. But certain guys have the ability to see that it could work five or six different ways. And the understanding of going, oh, well, if it plays out that way, I can make that work. And if it plays out that way... Not very many guys can do that. He has that unique ability along with his unbelievable skill set that he is the best quarterback in our game 
right now. I believe he's got a chance to rival Tom Brady uh, when it's all said and done. If we see all this continue to progress just because of both the physical and the mental that he has. I know it's a long way to go and I'm not, you know, we, uh, we can sit here and, it, you know, it's easy to just go, man, nobody's ever going to accomplish what Tom Brady has accomplished. And that may be true, but just the skill set of Patrick Mahomes and how the success that he's had so early, I think it at least gives us a chance to go, well, maybe, maybe somebody can. And if that maybe is anybody, it's possibly Patrick Mahomes. And so I'm excited to watch the next 15 years of his career and yeah, see too. if he can chase down Brady. If not, I think we're just going to see one of the greats and uh, his career play out in a special, special way. Yeah, me too, Kurt. I look forward to that. I certainly have enjoyed my time with you today. Thank you so much for taking all this time with me and spraying some knowledge uh, on our listeners. It's uh, it's it's wonderful to have one of the elite guys, uh, you know, truly one of the great guys, uh, convicted deep in the faith, uh, family first, and consistently great for a really long time, whose journey was pulled through, motivated by perseverance and a deep desire to be the very best in the process. And you did it, man. You did it. And uh, there's a reason we have a bust in Canton, Ohio with, with your likeness on it that'll last 40,000 years, according to David Baker. Well, I so, appreciate it, my man. I always love catching up with you. Yeah, uh, appreciate your time, you man. I really do. I, I love that and uh, just love what you represent. So happy Thanks, to be man. on. And uh, anytime we can catch up again, I, I can't wait. It was a great conversation with Kurt, and I'll have more on him, of course, in my Game Winner segment at the end of the podcast. But Freeze Pops, before we get to your conversation with the experts from Vegas Insider, tell our listeners where they can find us on social media. If you want to see a picture of Morton pouring beer on his head, you got to follow us on Twitter, at Great Dane Nation. Follow us on Instagram at Great Dane Nation VI. And remember, make sure you check out the video version of our interview with Kurt Warner on the Vegas Insider YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash Vegas Insider TV. You can go back and check out our previous interviews with Troy Aikman, Andre Tippett, Thomas Morstead, and many more. That's youtube.com slash Vegas Insider TV. Now let's get to my conversation with Tom Cunningham from Vegas Insider. VegasInsider.com is the global leader for sports gaming information, and it's your authority for the newest and best sports gambling podcasts. Each week, we're joined by one of our Vegas Insider experts to make us a little smarter. And this week, we welcome back Vegas Insider's very own Tom Cunningham. Tom, what's going on? Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Of course. And make sure you check out Tom every weekday on the Vegas Insider YouTube channel for the Daily Insider. He's going to give you everything you need to know about the world of gambling. That's youtube.com slash Vegas Insider TV. And Tom, the NFL draft is here. Always an incredibly fun time around the league. Lots of storylines floating around. Lots of movement by all these teams trying to take their next step. So let's run through some NFL draft quick hitters with our gambling friends in mind. You ready to roll? Oh, let's do it. All right, so we know Trevor Lawrence is going number one overall to Jacksonville. We know Zach Wilson's going number two overall to the Jets. So give me the safest bet heading into Thursday that will actually be worth people's while. Where is their real value? 
Well, it's kind of riddled all over. This is a very unpredictable event because you also have teams trying to trade up while the draft is going on. I wouldn't be shocked if Jimmy Garoppolo got traded during the draft. So it's a little difficult to tell, but there's a good hedge opportunity uh, when I was looking at some of the odds. And you can get the Atlanta Falcons to draft a quarterback with their first pick at plus 200 and hedge it with Atlanta taking Kyle Pitts at minus 125. So if Atlanta does indeed draft Kyle Pitts, you'll break even. You won't lose money, but you won't win money. But if they draft a quarterback, if they take the guy from uh, North Dakota State or they take Justin Fields for some reason, assuming Mac Jones goes third, uh, then you profit. So I think that's a safe bet to hedge because this is such an unpredictable event. Okay, so you mentioned Kyle Pitts. Do you think he's going to be the first player to be taken off the board that isn't a quarterback? If he is, he will go uh, to Atlanta. Now, if someone decides to trade up and take the spot of Atlanta, which would be the fourth pick, then Cincinnati has the fifth pick, and you're probably looking at either uh, the the lineman from Oregon or you're looking at Jamar Chase from LSU. I think Atlanta's going to go Kyle Pitts, but it is not a lock in my mind. Well, and also Jerry Jones has been batting his eyes at Kyle Pitts for the better part of two months here. So I would love if Dallas traded up to four just for the storyline of it. I don't even like the Cowboys. I just think that would be really fun. All right, Tom, my beloved Patriots at 15, trade up, trade back, or stand pat? What do we think? They're not going to trade back, I don't think. They already have 10 picks. I'm not sure they need more this year. Uh, but they do need a quarterback, and they could stay at 15, but I'm willing to bet they move up in the draft. Now, Miami has the sixth pick, and it's unlikely the Dolphins are going to trade within their own division, but New England has the 15th pick, which is somewhat appealing for a a team at the top of the first round to move down to. And New England has 10 picks, as mentioned, so they can trade a couple of their picks in this draft in order to move up and get a quarterback. So I think, if anything, they might move up to get Justin Fields or the North Dakota State kid. I can't really see him moving back, but they might just stay put. If uh, if they start seeing Justin Fields falling or the fifth quarterback start to fall, they might just sit there and, and, and hope that they get the quarterback. However, I can see them trading up because they have a ton of picks to trade and they need a quarterback. You're speaking the language I like to hear, Tom. Give me a trade up, please, Bill, please, for the first time ever. Just trade up, please, please. All right, Tom, thanks as always for joining us. And before I let you go, tell everyone what you're working on and where they can find it. Oh, yeah. NFL Draft uh, Kentucky Derby is also coming up Saturday. We have a ton of content for that on our VegasInsider.com website, along with our YouTube channel as well. Got some good expert opinions there and a breakdown of all 20 horses competing on Saturday's race. Should be fun. And remember to check out that Vegas Insider YouTube channel for all of Morton's interviews from Great Day Nation, as well as amazing content from our handicappers talking NFL Draft, Kentucky Derby, NBA, and much more. Go to YouTube.com slash Vegas Insider TV. That's YouTube.com slash Vegas Insider TV. Tom, thanks as always for the time. We'll talk soon. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me. And now, Morton Anderson's Game Winner. Perseverance is the continued effort to do or achieve something despite difficulties, failure, or opposition. The action or condition or an instance of persevering equals steadfastness. Make a mental note of this, close your eyes, and then imagine someone in your life who has exhibited perseverance, 
and come out on the other side with great success and gratitude. You see them? You feel them? Got it? I see Kurt Warner and his incredible journey from football obscurity to Super Bowl champion and Pro Football Hall of Famer. When you examine Kurt's life journey, you have to marvel at the many parts that now tell the story of his incredible perseverance, willfulness, and unwavering faith. To know Kurt Warner is to understand his consistency in everything that he does and touches. He has depth in his beliefs. There's dimension to his perspective. Above all else, he values and prioritizes his faith and his commitment to his family. It has pulled him through difficult and distasteful times. His pride has always been there, but his ego was checked at the door. Third string quarterback, arena ball, NFL Europe, grocery store bagger, whatever the journey presented to him, he forged ahead with faith and perseverance and perspective. It is as if he knew how the story would end, but kept it to himself, stored away and smoldering, primed for the right moment to be stoked and shine brightly. History will show that Kurt Warner was one of the elite players in the history of the NFL. The numbers tell the story, the Lombardi Trophy validates the journey, and a bronze bust in Canton, Ohio, that would last 40,000 years, drops the mic for Kurt Warner and his legacy. The fun starts when we deep dive into how he did it. There we will find a unique human who earned everything through perseverance, faith, and an underdog mentality that inspires indefinitely. We'll see you next time. Great Dane Nation is presented by VegasInsider.com, the global leader in sports gaming information and your authority for the newest and best sports gambling podcasts. A big thanks to Kurt Warner for joining us this week, and thanks to Tom Cunningham and the team at Vegas Insider. Remember to check out the Vegas Insider YouTube channel for all of Morton's interviews from Great Dane Nation, as well as amazing content from our handicappers, talking NFL Draft, Kentucky Derby, and much more, go to youtube.com slash TV. Great Dane Nation is available on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review today. 